back on another Wednesday. Today is the 17th of August, and we got quite a few people out. A little bit of sickness going around. So we're going to continue with James. And um, last week I said something about we would try to talk a little bit about um, John Newton. And that was in reference to the verse 25 that uh, says, But whoso, this, this is uh, chapter 1 of James, verse 25, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, you know, when, when people hear the word law, they immediately think of, all right, that's going to keep me from doing what I want to do. Ah, oh, the law. It, I'm, I'm, I'm bound. I want to be free. I want to do what I want to do. But if you do, if you, imagine if you didn't have law. If you go out on Interstate 81 and there was no law, you had no police, no worries about any police pulling you over, there's no speed limit signs anywhere, there are people who think they can drive safely at 120 miles an hour, and then there are others who have been around a long time and they realize how dangerous it could be out there and they tend to drive 50 when it should be 70. So the big extreme of what people think will cause mayhem. Everybody needs to be driving the same speed to be safe. And that speed needs to be uh, not as high as some people think, but not as low as others. And, you know, if you're going slower, you have better chance of stopping before you hit a deer or a stalled vehicle or whatever. Common sense comes into play. So law is a very good thing. You can think of all kinds of other situations in society where if you didn't have law and you didn't have uh, consequences for your actions, things would be really, really bad. So law to a certain point gives you freedom, true freedom. Because if you had no law at all, you really wouldn't have freedom. You'd be too scared to go anywhere and you'd be in bondage a totally different way than you ever thought. Now, wouldn't it be nice if everyone tried to keep the law that God made, the moral law that God put in place? It's really hard to uh, perfect it because it is perfection. You can't make it better. And we, we look at the law the moral law of God, and we grow up in, in a, let's say we grow up in church, and you learn these laws of God, and as you grow up and they're, they're put in your mind, you think on those things. Remember uh, this past Sunday, I was talking about reading the Word of God when I was a kid, and because of reading that Word, getting it into me, and having a childlike faith that there was a real God in heaven that watched everything you did, 
and you are going to pay for it. You know, you, you might get away with some things your parents don't see you do, but God sees everything. You can't get away from it. So you start to do what's right because of that fear you have of this God that could punish you. And what, what is, what's sad is there's a whole lot of kids that are brought up with superheroes and even, even uh, things like Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, the Easter Bunny, and then you got Jesus. And they're brought up in all that. And they get to a certain age and they start figuring out certain things aren't real. And I, I fear that they get to the point where they think, is Jesus just a made-up fairy tale thing? Is he just uh, a way to keep me good? And I'm not, well, if I don't have to worry about Santa Claus bringing me presents, I don't have to worry about Easter Bunny, then maybe there's nothing to this Jesus either. So we need to be really careful how we bring up children. And I, I see it in all kinds of young people today that do not have any fear whatsoever. And I'm talking about a healthy fear a respect for God Almighty. They don't have it. And it, it really hurts my heart. So we need to be very careful in how we represent our Heavenly Father. So, when we talk about being truly born again, being saved, we know the law can't save us. we got to make sure we always remember that. There is... Uh, two kinds of righteousnesses in the Bible. Our righteousness, and we can learn the laws of God, grow up in it, uh, do really, really good in it, keep most of them, and feel pretty good about ourselves, and say, you know what, I'm a pretty righteous person. Well, you realize none of that does a thing for you at all for salvation. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And there's people going to listen to this and say, what do you mean? Come on now. I'm, doing all the, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing all these other things I would like to do, and you're telling me it's not getting me anywhere? I'm, yeah, it's getting you somewhere. It's getting you a whole lot better life to live on this earth, and you're, you're representing your Heavenly Father, but as far as you thinking that you following the law of God is going to get you into heaven just because you kept it, you are making a huge mistake there. You've got to set that completely aside, and you have to depend on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that alone. That's the only thing that's going to get you to heaven, is believing that Jesus was perfect, that Jesus was God in the flesh, came down here so that he can be like you, so that you could one day be like him. And simply believe that, and that's the only way you could possibly be saved. The only way. And there are people who have sat in churches for decades that don't understand that. That are keeping a mental tally of how much, how much good they've done, how many times they've been to church, and how they've done so much better than everybody else, and they think they have punched their ticket to go to heaven one day. 
and they're going to be very upset when they find out that did nothing to get them to heaven. Absolutely nothing. And they'll be shocked that the person who never came to church, they ended up getting locked up in jail, they finally got a message at the Bible study at the jail that told them that they couldn't depend on anything good they did. And that person sitting in jail was going, well, good, because I have nothing. I've done nothing good in my life. And they finally realize that it's just about believing what Jesus did good and believing on him, and then all of a sudden that person that has nothing to fall back on realizes that he can be like Jesus because Jesus came down here, hung on a cross, and took all of the, his sins on him and died in his place, and then he can go to heaven like he's Jesus. And he gets it and dies a week later and he goes to heaven. And he only has a couple things good that he did in his life. Now, living this life here on this earth is way better when we follow God's law. When we follow his word, it is way better. So, we learn it, we live it, and we live a life of bringing new people into this world that will follow him. We become church families so that we can make an impact on people, so that we can help. <clears throat> but it would be a shame if we did all that, lived our whole lives, and never really understood what true salvation So I pray that everybody would take a good hard look at Jesus and what he did for you, and only count the righteousness of Jesus. Now, John Newton was a man who lived in England. He wrote some amazing hymns. He was a dirty, rotten person. Do, do, does anybody know what he did for a living before he became a preacher in the Church of England? <clears throat> he was a slave trader. England was a horrible country for in the slave trade. And when this country was formed, we were an extension of Great Britain. So we had slavery here in this country. In this country, there was a lot of people, especially up north, that never owned slaves and did not want to own slaves and wanted to eliminate it in this great place of uh, what was the beginning of the United States of America. And it, uh, King George would not allow it. It was against the law to make slavery, you know, to abolish it or to, le or to let slaves free. There was a man named William Wilberforce who lived in England, and he uh, is the one who got everything started over there to try to eliminate the slave trade. Now, there's two different things. You have the slave trade, and then you have slavery. It's not, they're not the same. It's the slave trade is that whole process of taking ships to Africa and going in and finding people. Now, it's, now that is called man-stealing, and the Bible clearly talks about man-stealing being horrible. But there were people in Africa, one tribe would conquer another tribe, and they would take the captives and sell them. And then, they were, they, and then the Muslims who were in the northern Africa went down into Africa and took millions of people to be slaves. So the Muslims, 
Great Britain, Spain, France, all countries who were dominant, they took people and made slaves out of them. If you conquered a place and took slaves of the people, that was different. If there were people who knew they couldn't survive and they just made themselves indentured servants, that was different. You could be in big-time debt, and instead of being locked up, you could be uh, in debtor's prison, or you can work for somebody for seven years and, and pay off your debt by being a slave. The Bible has all kinds of references of people being a slave because people would conquer another people. So slavery has always been around, and it will probably always be around till the end of time. The slave trade was what uh, John Newton was a part of. He was brutal. He was horrible. A horrible person when it came to that. And he was on a ship one night, and that ship should have went down. And he finally, I'm going to read uh, out of this, uh, talking about the word forgetful in verse 25. James admonishes, I'm reading out of John Phillips' commentary. James admonishes us yet again not to be a forgetful hearer but a doer of the word. The word for forgetful points to a hearer who is chronically forgetful, a hearer characterized by absent-mindedness. We can all have an occasional slip of memory, but it is a serious matter to be one who forgets habitually. Such a man was John Newton in his unregenerate days. As a boy... He was thrown from a horse and nearly lost his life. thought that was interesting um, when I read that. <clears throat> he soon forgot his, his close call. Uh, he and, his, and some friends made a date, to, a date to visit a naval vessel at anchor in the bay. They were uh, to row out to the ship together. Something happened and Newton did not arrive on time, so his friends left without him. Their boat capsized and they were drowned. He went to their funeral. And just think about, you know, being a young person, all your friends, you were supposed to be with them. They went out on this little boat to, on this uh, naughty adventure and they all died. And you, because of whatever reason, you didn't make it on time and you're the one that's left. But he soon forgot about that. He had a vivid dream that disturbed him greatly and haunted him for a while. Once more, he forgot. His mother died when he was seven. Every day of his childhood, she had prayed for him, uh, for him and with him. After her death, however, he soon forgot her prayers. He fell in love with Mary Catlett. Her love and prayers pursued him on his wild career that was that one anchor. So that, his wife's praying for him, was his one anchor that saved him from total shipwreck as he went from bad to worse on the high seas, sinking lower and lower into sin. Then came his conversion in a terrible storm at sea when it was only through God's mercy that the ship did not sink. That night, John Newton sought mercy for himself and found it. He went on to become a clergyman of the Church of England. He lived for God and wrote hymns that we sing to this day some 250 years later. After his conversion, he put the following text 
on the wall of his study. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. <clears throat> so he put that on his wall. You know, he was, he was part of making people slaves, but one day, because of all those things that had happened in his childhood, that they were in there. They were inside of him. His mom praying for him every single day of his childhood until she died when he was seven. Those, those occasions where he should have died, but he didn't, with the horse being thrown off the horse and nearly dying, um, the boat that flipped over with all of his friends and they all drowned, but he mysteriously was, you know, kept away. And finally one day he realized that maybe God had, a, had something in, in, in mind for him and it all finally came together after he had fallen worse and worse in sin. So he's in the business of making people slaves. But he realizes that he was the one that was a slave. He was held in bondage of sin. The devil had him. He was in bondage. And he needed to be set free. So every single one of us, when we come into this world, just because of where we come from, we have that problem. We come into this world in a body of flesh that is very sore. Uh, it's just, it, it causes us a lot of problems, just, just the body that we live in. And we have a world around us that's pulling us in all different directions, pulling us away from God. And then we have a devil that's very, very happy to lie to us, to tell us he has the way, and that God's really not looking out for you. So we have the world, the flesh, and the devil that we're contending with all the time. And we are a bond slave. We are chained. And we need to be set free from that bondage. And that law of liberty... This Word of God is what sets us free. We need to be brought out of Egypt, and we need to be heading toward that promised land. Now, the promised land, back in, when you go back to the beginning of your Bible and you're reading how Moses set the people free from Egypt, that's like us being set free from the world. And the lawgiver, Moses, he is a type and picture of Jesus in that that's what Jesus can do for us. He can get us uh, uh, away from the world bondage. But that law, the law that's in our Bibles, it is, this is going to sound like we're back in Galatians again, but the law and what Moses did can only get you turned in the right direction. So the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is to help you understand the people that I talked about earlier that have been in churches for decades and still don't really truly get it, they might be living a wonderful life. They might be doing mostly the right things. And they might be very, very proud of their life. But are they just freed from the world, but they have never crossed the Jordan? Moses was leading the people, and they kept going around and around, and finally one day when it was time, 
to go through the Jordan River, Moses could not take them over because he represented the law and he disobeyed God. None of us can say that we've obeyed enough. Think about it. None of us can say that we've obeyed the law good enough to be allowed to go into the promised land, right? We might think we've done enough, but you're not getting through. And Moses, because he didn't, he represents us in that we have, if we're following the word and it's leading us to Jesus and we may have gotten to that point of that Jordan River, we need a Joshua. Moses died in the wilderness. He wasn't allowed to go over. That's the, we need to see those little details and start to realize, oh, okay, Moses got me pointed in the right direction, but now that I'm at the Jordan, I need a Joshua, which is Jehovah saves. That's what that means, same meaning that Jesus is. That name Jesus and Joshua mean the same thing. He's the one that can take us through that Jordan River into the promised land. While we're on this earth, them, those, the children of Israel going through the Jordan River into the promised land is like us truly believing the word, truly believing that it's all about what Jesus did for us, then we miraculously die that type of going down into the water in the Jordan, that's death, and then being raised to walk in newness of life like Jesus was brought up out of the grave we likewise are brought up out of that Jordan River, and then Joshua, Jesus, leaves, le leads us into the Promised Land, which is the kingdom of God for us. When those people got into the Promised Land, was everything just hunky-dory? Was everything just wonderful? What was the first big battle they faced? Jericho. The huge wall of Jericho. Jericho represents the world. Then they had this little tiny town called Ai that they had to fight, and they got whipped. They conquered the huge place of Jericho by just walking around, walking around, walking around, tooting on their horns, yelling with a loud voice, and the walls are just going to fall down. Yeah, right, Joshua. Well, that's what happened, because he believed, and he did you know, Joshua was righteous because he believed what God told him. The walls didn't fall down because of them walking around. Because anybody has any sense knows that just walking around is not going to make the walls fall down. But God said, that's what you got to do, and that's what's going to happen. And out of faith, a childlike faith, they did exactly what God said to do, and what God said was going to happen, happened. You... The gospel is foolishness to those who are wise. Foolishness. But it's the power to save us. And we need to be like a child and believe it. So when we are born again, we truly are saved, we go into our promised land, which is Canaan. But there's Jericho's there. There's Ai's there. I think AI probably represents our flesh, you know, because we're just tiny. We're just this little tiny speck in this universe. Jericho represents the big bad world that we live in. That's just the way I see it. 
and because they were told not to take anything out of Jericho, nothing. And Achan, one person disobeyed, and it caused a lot of misery for a whole lot of people. Not only that, but it, when you don't allow yourself to give up the world, all those things that keep you in bondage, if you don't let go of the worldly pleasures, and then you want to try to uh, have victory, and you're still walking in this flesh, you're thinking, it's just a little of me, no big deal. No one will notice. Does God even know I'm here? Yeah, he knows exactly where you are. As insignificant as you might think you are. So they, they went up and spied out Ai, and they said, uh, it's just a tiny place. Joshua, we don't need to take everybody. Just, just a few. We don't, need, we don't need a whole army, just a portion of it. And he's like, oh, okay. So they underestimated their foe, they went and ran away scared, and people died. And Joshua was very upset over that whole situation. But then they found out the reason why. It's because Achan had hid stuff. He had taken stuff. So they were still holding on to the world. Now, most everybody obeyed. So when people say, well, yeah, I'm sinning, I'm doing bad things, but I'm only hurting myself. Really? That sin of Achan, could he say that? That's, uh, yeah, I sinned, but it was only hurting me. His wife, all of his kids, all of his stuff, they all died. All of them were executed because of what he did. And people died in the battle of Ai because of what he did. The whole nation suffered because of one man's sin. Don't ever think that the sin that you do only affects you. I promise you it's affecting a whole lot more than just you. Never underestimate your flesh. You can't defeat it. Jesus has to do it for you. If you take on the job of trying to crucify your flesh, it's all you'll ever do, and you'll never be able to do anything else for God. I know I've said that a million times, but people tend to forget. Uh, that verse in here says forgetful hearers. In Romans 6, it talks about how we are buried with Jesus. In baptism, we're buried with him. We are put in the grave with him, and we have been resurrected with him. That's when your flesh has been done away with, in Romans 6. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. Like that pig illustration that Charles Spurgeon did, you are no longer a pig, you're a cat now. And you if you're truly born again. After they finally got victory at Ai, they had some people called the Gibeonites that came. And the Gibeonites were right over the hill. And that was the next people that they were supposed to wipe out. Remember what they did? The Gibeonites came, with, put dirt all over themselves, they had bread that had hardened up and molded cheese that was all messed up, and they acted like they played the part of coming from a long distance. And they said, Joshua, we've heard all about you and God's people, and we would like to make a league with you. We want to we be your friends. And they tricked him into signing off a peace treaty. But they were really the next people they were supposed to wipe out. And what does that remind you of? Who will trick you? The devil. So we've got Jericho, 
represents the world. Ai represents your little flesh that doesn't seem like much. But then you have the Gibeonites that tricked him. The devil's out there. You get, you get separated from the world. You finally realize how you take care of this flesh that's causing you all these problems. And then you run into the devil. Because he's, by, that, by that point, he's starting to take notice of you. Oh, you've been freed from the world. You're not letting those worldly things keep you from doing what God wants you to do. Oh, well, they'll never get past the flesh thing. The, the devil loves it when you try to fix yourself. Like I said, you can go and uh, you can make a, uh, a law out of reading a certain amount of Scripture a day and going to church and doing all these things, willpower and, and whatever, and I'm going to fix this flesh. And I'm telling you, it will consume everything, and you'll never kill it. You have to believe what the Bible says, that the, the old man is crucified. Jesus takes care of that. And, and, and when you get that, the devil's over there going, no, 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 that's one of my best tricks. And you're like, no, I, this, this, there's, it's a waste of time, me trying to fix this. It needs to be crucified. And you believe it. Well, then he really takes notice, and he's going to come after you. So don't be surprised if the devil comes running when you are having victory in your Christian walk. He'll show up. But be ready for it. That's why we needed all that armor. You know, vacation Bible school, we had all that armor that we learned about. And that's why you got to have it, because he, if you get to that point, he's coming after you. But... Again, you don't have to fear it. You need to realize that he's just a roaring lion. He, he's going to make himself look really mean and tough. You just need to stand your ground. And the Bible says to resist him. All you got to do is resist him, and he'll flee. Just speak the name of Jesus. He can't stand that. Maybe we'll finish chapter 1 tonight. We've got two, ver what, two verses left. 26 of James 1, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Now you don't see the word religion hardly ever in the Bible. Religion is really kind of a bad word. <clears throat> you know that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. Make sense? There's a lot of religions in this world. You can make Christianity a religion, but it's not a religion. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's true Christianity. Very few people uh, figure that out. The Jewish way of doing things, Judaism, that was, that was some religion right there. All of the laws they had to keep, not just moral laws, but ceremonial laws. They had the feast days and all the killing of the animals and taking them to the temple and all that stuff. All, all kinds of things they had to keep up. Now that's religion. And there are plenty of churches, Protestant churches, that want to, they, you know, when a person is playing the part, when a church denomination is just playing the part, they got to have a whole lot of those things to do to make them feel like they're religious enough. 
because deep down inside, they don't have any peace. So when you go to a church that is extremely legalistic, a church that has uh, Jewish ceremonial things that they do all the time, they keep a church calendar of all church events throughout the season, and they got to do those things every year the same way every year. When you see that, you're seeing a group of people, or maybe it's a denomination, that does not have a true concept of Christianity is a relationship, and they're trying to make up for what they don't really get deep down inside of them, which is peace and rest in Jesus Christ. Okay? And bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. I think that's what I, all I said. Just, that's what it's about. Now, this, uh, his tongue, the, if, if you've been reading through Proverbs, like I've been reading through Proverbs. I told you I read all the way through Proverbs in the month of July, one proverb a day for the 31 days, and I'm going through it again. And if, if I wrote down every proverb, every because you've got you know, your chapters, but I'm talking each individual one in each chapter, as you read them and you start to write them down, every one that deals with the tongue or your lips, mouth, it's talking about speaking things. The book of Proverbs is full of warnings about what we say and uh, encourages us to be more quiet than speaking. You know, a wise person once said, uh, God gave us two ears and one tongue. So we should listen twice as much as we speak. Um, I just finished a really good book, um, Governor Christy Nome's book called Not My First Rodeo. I highly recommend it. She is a, she is a uh, Christian woman. She references the Bible many times through that book. <clears throat> and when she first became governor of South Dakota, she couldn't understand why her staff, when they went to their meetings, why they would never debate things, wouldn't talk. They just wouldn't get into it. And one of her staff members, because she was complaining to two people, and one of the staff members, this young fella, he said, uh, maybe you should try not talking so much. And she was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, every time we go to a meeting, you tell everybody what you think, and then you expect everybody to start debating you. You're the governor. No one wants to debate you. And she's like, oh. So she, every time after that, they would go in and they would, somebody would have introduced a law, you know, uh, some legislation they needed to go over and fine-tune and maybe vote on one day. And so she, she just stayed quiet. And she was amazed at how many people started talking and debating amongst each other why they shouldn't, should do, because she just stayed quiet and let them do. So then she started to realize how people really felt about things. So certain people in authority need to learn to be quiet so they can get production out of others. Verse 27, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affl affl affliction 
and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, we've been talking a lot about that, about being unspotted from the world. Remember, James is very, very Jewish. <laughs> he is talking to his people. Something that we went over in Sunday school this past Sunday, I was talking about how there was a transition period when the old dispensation of the law was coming to a close and this new dispensation of grace was starting up. Well, when did the old dispensation of law end? What happened that caused the dispensation of law to come to a stop? Think about one thing that, that happened that, that made it that way. I'm, I'm thinking of the temple. Jesus is on the cross. What happened in the temple? The veil was, was ripped. And it was a miraculous rip. It didn't rip from the, from the bottom up. It ripped from the top down, and it was really thick. There's no way it could have ripped on its own. It was a miracle that it ripped. So it opened up the Holy of Holies that nobody could go in except for that one priest who was dedicated to do so, and everything had to be just right to go in there. And if that priest was to mess up anything, like blood, you had to have blood, I think it was like on a big toe and a blood on your earlobe and a drop of blood on your thumb. It, let's say he missed one spot, and he walked in behind the curtain and went to do the work of the priest at the, in the Holy of Holies, he would have dropped dead. They used to tie a rope around him. Yeah. And they would, when they heard him, boom, they would, oh, well, they'd pull him out. Because no one else could go in there to get him. Or they had a big hook, like they would, you know, get sheep up out of a ditch. They would take that hook under and try to hook them. Well, that, when Jesus died on the cross and the veil was rent, it made the temple, Holy of Holies, obsolete. So the law, the, the dispensation of law had come to an end officially. But there was all these Jewish people that had, that's been their way of life. And now this new thing has happened. So imagine a an overlap, a transition period. Now this new way of doing things, this, this dispensation of grace that Jesus brought in starts at that same time. So think of A.D. 30. When did Jer Jerusalem fall? When did it actually fall and everybody was dispersed? It was A.D. 70 when the Romans came in and totally destroyed everything. How many years is that? From, from 30 to 70? It's 40 years. 40 years. Isn't that significant? Think about how many times in the Bible the word 40, rain 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus was tested. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, hungry as he could be. The children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The number 40 is a, is a time of trials and testings. So there was this 40-year transition period. They had the Old Testament, all the Old Testament they had. But did they have any of the New Testament at uh, A.D. 30 when Jesus died on the cross? I don't think there's anything in the New. 
But then if you have a Bible that where you can see where they estimate what the date was written, most, most Bibles will have uh, uh, a little section at the beginning of every book that will kind of give you some details about it. And a lot of them will tell you when they thought, think, uh, when it was written. So just about every New Testament book, when was it written? Almost every single one was written in that 40-year period. There's two places, and, the only, and that would be Revelation and the Gospel of John, and maybe 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, because they're all wrote by the same person. All the disciples, the apostles, they all died a martyr's death, right? Every one of them, except for who? John. He was, he was banished to Patmos, and he wrote Revelation there. So that Revelation and the Gospel of John, you can check me on this. I haven't gone back and, and looked up these dates. I'm just guessing, but I do know that almost every book of the New Testament was written between 30 and 70 in that transition period. So there are certain things that happened in that 40-year transition period that we do not see today. Jesus told them to go out and gave them special ability to heal people, raise people from the dead. They had this special ability to speak in unknown tongues because they were going to places that didn't speak their language. There was all kinds of signs and gifts that they had that was very prevalent in that 40-year transition period. Now, in AD 70, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. What did, what did Jesus say about the temple? Remember what he said. He said, not one stone would, will be left unturned. Jesus said that when he was walking on the earth. He said, not one, looking at that temple, not one stone will be left unturned. When they went in, when they finally went in, because for years, I don't know how, how long it was, it was a very long time that they surround, the Romans surrounded Jerusalem to where no one could get out, no one could get in, and people inside the city started to starve. And they got to the point where they were either going to die of starvation or they can try to make a run for it. Every time somebody tried to make a run for it, they were weak. They hadn't eaten. They just couldn't, and they would be captured and they would be brutally murdered. It was a horrible situation. Well, finally it got to the point in 70 AD where the Romans were instructed to go in and burn everything up. But they were told, do not hurt the temple. Destroy everything else, but do not touch the temple. I want the temple. It's amazing. Gold in it like crazy. And all kinds of wood that had been there for a really long time. Dry wood, a lot of gold-plated stuff. Some Roman soldier really messed up. And a torch went through a window of the temple. Something happened, and it caught on fire. And because of all that wood that was throughout the temple, it burned with an intense heat. And all that gold in there started to melt. And it ran down, and it went down into the pavers of the floor. And days and days later, when everything cooled down and the Roman soldiers were pillaging, going through and trying to find anything they could get, they started to realize they were taking all the gold out of the temple. And they started to realize that 
because of the hot fire that the gold had melted and ran down in the pavers. So they started chiseling and breaking and they would pull over a stone and there would be gold beneath. They pulled it out and they started pulling another stone and another. So you guessed it. Every last stone was turned over to get the gold out. And that was in 70 AD. Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus was there in the beginning. He's the one that wrote all this. He's the one that created everything. Jesus is God in the flesh that came down here and hung on a cross for us. <clears throat> all right, that's going to do it. We might as well uh, just be really happy we finally finished chapter 1. And we'll pick up with chapter 2 next week. And a lot of that was totally unplanned. Sorry, but I hope you got something out of it. And you're in trouble. You were late. You missed some really good stuff. You've got to listen to it on the podcast to catch up. Who do you think you are coming in late? supposed to say, hey, Pastor Stun has a privilege. I, when, when, I, when I was, uh, when I was in, I, it was Glenver, Glenver Baptist. Glenver Baptist, I've heard some people around here talk about Glenver Baptist. When I was a kid, uh, mom went to Glenver Baptist for a while, and I had some aunts that were going there, and I went there, and we did Good News Club after school there, and Barbara Sprouse taught us in Good News Club. She was an awesome lady, and so in Sunday school, I was in Sunday school with uh, um, uh, Patsy Hodge. Hodges? Is it Hodge or Hodge? Hodges. Cliff. Is it Clyde? I mean, Clyde and Patsy. Okay. And their, their daughter, Jenny, was in my class. Okay. Well, Patsy was teaching it. And so we're all in there, and... Uh, Patsy's like, uh, everybody get your Bibles out. And Jenny didn't have her Bible. And the preacher's son was in our class, and he didn't have his Bible. And we're, we're, all the other kids in there had their Bibles, and we're all looking at them. And, and, and uh, Jenny's looking at the pastor, like, well, you don't have your Bible either. And he said, hey, I'm the preacher's kid. I don't have to have mine. But you're the Sunday school kid. You have to have yours. And they were back there you know, picking on each other. That's one of my memories of going to Glenver Baptist when I was a kid. And uh, just thinking about, you know, that family. You know, Jenny's part of the Seneca Baptist now, as far as I know. Clyde, I think, teaches Sunday school up there. And uh, they've just been a good, a good family in this area for a very long time. And I can remember playing with uh, Jeff and Jenny when I was a kid. And, and I see Jeff every now and then. Um, but, you know, it's, it's good to have relationships and, and be around other people, other Christians. You know, back then, you didn't have a whole lot of people. In my, in my life, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of people. I can, I can think of some others that used to come out and, and pick me and my sister up and take us to churches. So those people, they, they may have felt like, they weren't getting much done. Uh, things weren't going well, but they don't know what kind of impact they made on me. And I see some of those people now. Danny Wimmer would be one who used to come out and pick me up and take me to church. And I saw him last year, almost a year ago, 
up at Seneca Baptist. He had gone over there for, they're having Tuesday nights there this whole month. And um, we, we've been having meetings on Tuesdays, so it's kind of messed us up on that. But I would encourage you, if we have a free Tuesday to go up there to Seneca, that the preaching is amazing. And I, I saw Danny um, there last year. And then, of course, the very next week I had COVID. And I was really wanting to go to the last one they had because uh, it was a guy that I had listened to on tape, but it didn't go out. I was too sick. So a lot of good memories from years gone by of different people who, who made an impression on me. And remember that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Father, I thank you for all those people that have stood with you, Father. People who just felt led to be a light and to go out and to search for people who needed to know you. And Father, I pray that you would bless those people, some of those people that I just mentioned, and just give them a blessing. Let them know that they have done things that have made an impression on some, and who knows, maybe many, many more. And Father, as we try to continue your work here. I pray that you would bless us, give us the ability to continue on. And Father, we are so thankful for the people who have started coming here and who are just wanting to know more about you, Father, wanting to be part of a church. And Father, I pray that you would send us more. And Father, I pray that we would be willing to accept those who want to be part of your kingdom, that we would be very willing to teach and to be open, to be able to just listen to what uh, others say, not, not to be always wanting to be the one speaking, but to be quiet long enough to listen to the needs and maybe what others can teach. Father, help us in that. Father, I pray that we would not forget, that we would not be a forgetful hearer, that we would remember. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.